0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Putting It All Together. This is the Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast, and I am your host, Dr. M. Today, I'm going to take the last three podcasts, episodes number three, four, and five, which comprise the interviews of Dr. Randy Jurdle, Ken Cook, and Dr. Victoria Mazes. These three educators have brought us from ground zero to a higher level now of understanding as to what's really happening to us as a society from a human frame perspective when we look at maternal health, pregnancy, childbirth, and all the antecedent risk factors as they are related to this entire process the thrust of the Women and Children First podcast has always been, can we understand what's really happening in our world from a physiologic or better yet said, a pathophysiologic perspective, where we are people, humans, that exist in this world, this environment, and how does our interaction, our our interplay between, between us humans and the external world or what we call the environment. How does that interplay affect us? Are we positively affected, negatively affected? Uh, are we not affected? And clearly these first three educators have shown us what's really happening. So let's start with what Dr. Jertle taught us. You know, So here we go right out of the gate with a learning curve steeply provided that shows us the mechanism behind what was otherwise unknown up until 2003. What's really happening to us from an environmental perspective? And so the agouti mouse comes along, and in 2003, Dr. Giordal's lab shows us that by giving the agouti mouse mother, in this case the, the, the pregnant or soon-to-be-pregnant mouse, methyl donors, in this case a carbon atom with three hydrogens attached to it, this comes specifically from food sources, vegetables, was added to the food of the mama mouse. And they watched to see what the experiment would show. If nothing was done and they were fed standard mouse chow, the offspring in general would be yellow, fat, diabetic, and prone to cancer. And in this case, the animals, while consuming the chow with the added methyl donors from the vegetables, allowed for a change. And that change we saw as a offspring that came out brown, skinny, non-diabetic, and not prone to cancer. And when they analyzed what happened, they found something remarkable. They found that this thing called epigenetics, or upon the genome, were these little marks, these little carbon atoms with these three hydrogens attached to an upstream part of the gene that said to the gene to be silenced or not read. Nothing was changed in the coding of the gene. And we get into this with Dr. Jertl very importantly because the genetic code is identical. It is not the genetic code that gets changed. It is the upstream region that tells it to be read or not read. So for the first time in, in our understanding scientifically, we have the ability to change the outcome of an offspring via a food source. That is the seminal point in change for me in understanding how critical food is for a healthy pregnancy. This will lead into what Dr. Mazes goes through ad nauseum in her beautiful discussion of the integrative approaches to having a healthy pregnancy and specifically fertility. And she talks very Fondly and appropriately about the Mediterranean diet, or what we call the anti inflammatory diet. That diet is loaded with quality macronutrients and quality micronutrients, polyphenols, very healthy chemicals that, when added to the pregnant situation of a mother, that chemical structure of the food sources plays a pivotal role epigenetically in our mind in having a positive offspring outcome and she went on to discuss you know studies looking at obesity and the risk factors related to being out of a healthy state as a pregnant woman and the offspring risk and the increase in autism an increase in 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 Congenital deformities. I think of a study from Kong et al. in 2018 that showed that ADHD, autism, and mood were three times increased in risk if they were uh, if a child was born to a mother who had obesity and diabetes. If the mother had diabetes pre-pregnancy, that risk was greater than gestational diabetes that occurred during pregnancy, which the risk was greater than if the mother was of normal weight pre-pregnancy. A separate study by Neovius, N-E-O-V-I-U-S et al. in 2017, the British Medical Journal, looked at 1.2 million live births and found that congenital malformations of all sorts of a child would increase with obesity of their mother, and there was a linear association between the obesity severity and the risk of developing congenital malformation. So when you start to look at that, you say, okay, we have a mechanism of reason why something would go wrong, as we saw with the agouti mouse model. Impossible to repeat these studies in humans because we can't control for all the factors that are able to be controlled for in a... Mouse experiment in a lab. But what we do have are studies that show epidemiologically that these risks do occur. We have mechanistic understanding from Dr. Journal how these things can occur. And his group later went on, as we learned in his interview, went on to look at what happens if we give a plasticizer, BPA, to the um, mouse during the pregnancy phase. And lo and behold, they found that it did the opposite. It became a hypomethylator, what's known as a a methyl remover. And so then the, the mice would come back to the abnormal state of yellow fat, diabetic, and prone to cancer. And there was definitely a dose association issue here where the more methyl donors provided by the food would overtake the effect of the plastic and back and forth. So now we are sitting in a situation where we have really quality mechanistic data in an animal model, that likely means that we have a similar problem in humans where we have a push-pull. We have the positive that comes from a food source or what I would consider natural source, and we have a negative that's coming from a synthetic source or a human-derived source. So we have a positive with food and a negative with chemicals, right? We have epidemiologic data showing obesity is a major risk factor. Well, we talked a little bit about what are the problems with obesity with Dr. Mazes. And when we looked at that issue, we found that obesity, which is highly associated with metabolic syndrome, also insulin resistance, these issues are related to abnormalities in in sex steroid binding globulin or, or a protein that carries the sex steroids around. Right, And so if that happens, you have issues with a female who doesn't want high loads of pre- testosterone, which is a male pattern hormone, floating around in the body. And unfortunately, in an obesity state or a, a insulin-resistant state, that's going to happen. And that puts the person at risk for more problems, including specifically, in this case, fertility issues. So when you look at that, you say, okay, well, what drives insulin resistance? And if you go back to the podcast I did about two months ago, there is a, a very long but really high quality understanding that comes from a bunch of different articles that have been recently published looking at what's the major driver of insulin resistance. Well, it's a double hit theory. It is the consumption of excess fats along with the consumption of excess sugar. So in this case, the fats, the the, the fatty acids specifically, something called diacylglycerol, from excess fats are driving a change intracellularly of the muscle that causes the muscle to become insulin resistant and by that it's it's an issue related specifically to a receptor that's supposed to rise to the cell surface in the presence of insulin to allow sugar to come into the cell and be utilized for energy in in the case of somebody who has excess fat ingestion on board that doesn't happen and this evolutionarily probably is completely related to the fact that we did not have periods of consistent food sources, and so we had periods of feast and famine. During the feast, we wanted to store these calories, so we'd become insulin resistant to force them to be put into fat cells, not to be utilized by the muscle. Well, this becomes highly problematical if you're insulin resistant at the same time you're consuming large volumes of sugar. So therefore, not only are you not able to get the sugar across the muscle membrane because of this GLUT4 transporter issue from the high fat that you've been consuming. But now that sugar has to be pushed somewhere else. So your pancreas releases tons and tons of insulin. That insulin then goes to the fat cell and says, hey, you take this glucose. So the fat cell gets uh, overloaded with sugar, which gets stored in a form that we call triglyceride, and you're off to the races. Well, that's... In and of itself, one thing. The problem we know now is that's highly associated with inflammation in those areas. And now we know the sex binding globulin hormone issue and further hormone dysregulation comes up. And we have a recipe for really big problems. So there is some of the mechanistic understanding to why the Mediterranean diet is so important. But then again, looking at Ken Cook's work, we see now where are the chemicals coming from? His group, Environmental Working Group in D.C., has spent years putting together databases of information of where the chemicals that are potentially causing problems, as we saw the agouti mouse model, mechanistically, where are these chemicals and what could they possibly be doing to us, right? And and are these chemicals hiding in plain sight? Are they in your sunscreens? Are they in your face makeup, your shampoos, these everyday products, your couches? And his group has shown us where these things are. So we have a mechanistic model, We have a toxicologic situation that probably exists for most of us. We have a dietary issue that if we're not consuming high-quality foods, we're now at the state where the push-pull is probably not in the right direction. So you can imagine a state where a mother, who currently is growing up in southern states of the United States where I live in North Carolina, and, and she is ready to have her second child. She's stressed out. She's busy with first child running around the house, maybe not enough time to provide for the best quality food, assuming that all those opportunities are even available. So maybe the diet's not perfect. We're less capable of, of consuming the best foods. We're a little more insulin resistant than we need to be. What's going to happen? Oh, and by the way, maybe we're exposed to some chemicals because we're not really aware of where the chemicals are. And we can see now how the potential risk factors for increased autism, which we're seeing in high numbers now, one in somewhere around less than 50, where it used to be one in 10,000 when I was born, or ADHD, which seems to be every other child these days. So we now have an understanding of where this stuff could be going wrong. As Ken Cook rightly pointed out, sometimes it's not a single chemical that's causing the problem. Sometimes it's a three, four chemicals in a similar product or in separate products that are coming together, and the confluence of them may be the issue. These are all really difficult answers to prove because of the variables. In Europe, they have the precautionary principle. It's up to the company to prove safety. In the United States, not so much. It's up to us to prove being harmed, and that's a much trickier situation. So part of, again, the reason behind my choice For these first three interviewees and also this podcast in general to try and lay the framework for how possibility of disease risk comes to play. What are the mechanisms underlying this? And therefore, can we as consumers of knowledge make decisions for ourselves that decrease our antecedent risk of a negative outcome for our child. And ultimately, that's what every podcast moving forward is going to be. I have a few lined up in the next few weeks where we're going to do a deep dive into the maternal microbiome and the microbiome of a child. Specifically, this is going to be the intestines that is where you feed three times a day food sources, including fiber and non fibrous foods and bacteria and viruses and things that we get exposed to on top of chemicals. And what are we doing to ourselves day to day through our food issues, right? And we're going to get into some fascinating data that I think everybody's going to want to know. There was some work by Corin et al. that showed the maternal microbiome, which again, for those who don't know what a microbiome is, it is this bacterial source inside our intestines, uh, small and large, mostly in the large, where we have these friends that exist within us and work for us. While they eat our food, fiber specifically, we have this symbiotic relationship that we never really understood until the last two decades, that these bacteria are metabolically affected by our food and then metabolically affect us. And so we're now learning how this microbiome could and likely does play a major role in pregnancy and the outcomes thereof. So when you look at a mother, all these bacteria floating around in her intestines at conception, that state of her microbiome at conception mirrors that of the child at birth. But what's fascinating, and this is what we're gonna get into later on is that That microbiome over this period of time during the 10-month pregnancy goes from being whatever state it's at at the beginning to an insulin-resistant, almost metabolic syndrome state by the end. And this makes logical sense evolutionarily again, because if you think about it, a historical period of time, which is most of the human existence, where food is scarce, you would want to store everything you could to make sure pregnancy makes it. And then you'd wanna store every calorie you could to make sure you're able to breastfeed once the child is born. In, in, In the absence of that, survival would be very difficult. And again, I've said before many times that our genes are specifically involved inside of each cell of our body for our survival and procreation. So if our genes are telling us to do X, Y, and Z for survival and procreation, it's fascinating to me that these bacteria also have a role in helping our survival and procreation. And for them, their survival and procreation by definition, because if we stay alive, they stay alive. So this symbiotic system is absolutely mind-blowing as we're learning about it. And we're going to get into this a little bit, like I said, with two upcoming guests, uh, Dr. Kajirsti Agard from Baylor and Dr. Lindsay Albenberg from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. The two experts are going to help us understand from a microbiome perspective of mom as well as child because they're both experts in their own fields, one in obstetrics and one in pediatrics. That understanding is now going to take us on another journey of what else is going on mechanistically behind the risk factors of disease, right? And this is all going to tie together with what we learned with Dr. Mazes, Dr. Jurdle, and Ken Cook. This, this framework or web that I'm trying to spin will really help us all make hopefully better decisions because once we understand the reasons behind the why, it tends to be an easier leap of faith to make the decision to do the right thing. And I think most mothers are very, very interested in doing the right thing to have the best outcome for a child that is possible. If we get back to some of the microbiome discussions... So from corn et al. again in 2012, if we note that the microbiome of mom shifts during pregnancy from whatever state it's in to this insulin-resistant type state by the end for this calorie storage and survival perspective, what happens if mom has a microbiome made up of these microbes that are already in an insulin-resistant type state at the beginning of pregnancy? you know, we have a problem in America now where roughly 40 plus percent of all women who get pregnant are overweight to begin with and likely insulin resistant significantly. The microbes don't know that this is the case. And so they'll continue to push the metabolic nature of mom towards a more insulin resistant state. And I think this is going to turn out to be one of the reasons we're seeing more gestational diabetes, more frank diabetes while pregnant, more issues with hypertension, preeclampsia, and i think we're going to start really getting a deeper understanding as to why is this happening well when we get into the deeper understanding of why that why is likely related mostly to problems of microbiome makeup well that makeup occurs from many different things birth process birth order maternal food intake child's food intake antibiotic exposure and acid exposure chemical exposure and on and on. And the environment of our society now is not as useful as it used to be towards a healthy state. So as we break down these pieces of risk, specifically related to the microbiome in the next upcoming lectures, they're all gonna tie together with the fundamentals as laid out by Dr. Jurdle. We need healthy food, not chemicals. We need nurturing, not um a bad behavior. We need high-quality environments, not low-quality environments. We have Ken Cook telling us all day long where these chemicals are. We have the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15 charts. We have uh, sunscreen charts. We have have Clean Skin Cream charts. He has all kinds of information on his site for you to use to make informed choice. That then leads into the excellent discussion by Dr. Mazes. She, in her book, Be Fruitful, has a tour of understanding, the roadmap as to what we need to do as a society to support women and then therefore their children to have the best outcome. Well, what does that mean? Well, number one on that list is to help women handle stress. Stress is not good for anybody. And when I say stress, I mean mostly mental stress. So we need to work hard on how do we help people deal with stress? What are the best ways to do that? You know, meditation, prayer. Um, support groups, time with friends, vacations. Dr. Mays has made a very big point about after, you're, after you deliver a child, having a, a longer period of time to help raise that child, three, six, 12 months with dad home as well. I know this is very difficult from an economic and a business perspective, but maybe that's one of the major players in our dysfunction as a society. You know, and then food you know, what kinds of food are we feeding ourselves, right? We know clearly the farm bill is an absolute abomination for America. We are subsidizing all the wrong foods, which is why we have corn, soy, and wheat, cheapest dirt, whereas vegetables, fruits, and meat are expensive. So the poorest among us are having the hardest time putting the best food on the table, then therefore we're a society of rising obesity. And even if you're not obese, you're rising inflammatory process as we we're we seeing terribly now with COVID taking the lives of many Americans who 96% of which have one of the four great metabolic diseases, including obesity, diabetes, heart disease, and, and high blood pressure. So, we need to start looking at that part of the game. How are we getting this food into ourselves? How can we help change that paradigm? How can we get the government to want to care about us enough to take our taxpayer dollars and give us high quality food, right? And then then we talk about toxicology. You know, Ken Cook is laying out the framework. We need to look at these things. We need to find where these chemicals are, avoid them, do the best we can to be as healthy as we can, right? And then Ultimately, you start going down the list of other possibilities of of risk avoidance. So exercise, how do we move more? How do we help... Increase the burning of fuels. You know, when you move, you actually do the exact opposite of insulin resistance. You you translocate this GLUT4 transporter in the muscle to the cell surface, so you actually directly counteract the effects of the high fat, high sugar diet by moving. So exercise is key in preventing metabolic diseases and problems with pregnancy. So before you want to get pregnant, exercise daily. And this does not mean you have to do CrossFit or HIT training or anything, but move, walk everywhere, take stairs when you can we need to help each other live lives that's purposeful, right? And getting ourselves to a place where we want to choose movement over sedentary behavior because we know the downstream effects are so powerful. You know, and, and movement's critically important for mood, for metabolism, for f- immune system function. It's just, it's just so critical. And then, you know, sleep. We're going to get into sleep down the road. It's critical to get good sleep. Women, I think, have some special superpower to be able to tolerate less sleep than men. Um, hopefully someday I'll figure that out. But I think, you know, helping to make sure that occurs and on and on and on. And so, you know, I'm going to leave you with this. When we hit the next few lectures, keep referring back in your mind to the first three and maybe take notes on the first three in your head or on paper. So that way the next few start to make sense as a, as a, a, uh, A web of understanding that gives us the tools to then add and and enrich the web over time with these successive lecturers to give us, at the end, really broad brushstrokes that eventually turn into fine-tuned brushstrokes that eventually turn into this beautiful painting of pregnancy, And that pregnancy then turns into a beautiful painting of a child or children. You end up with a triptych. And for an art history person, that's gorgeous. And so that's sort of my goal moving forward. And I hope these first three lectures had the intended outcome that was to be the mechanistic beginnings of understanding behind the why. And where we're going from here is to further fill in pieces of this web, this, this painting, as we go through it, so that at the end, we're all sitting here looking at the same painting going, mm, this makes sense. God had a plan, you know, and that plan was to not be a polar bear in the desert. That plan was to be a human person living in a really clean, well-fed, stress-free society. So with that, I'll leave you. I hope you guys have a fabulous day. I hope this was helpful. Uh, putting it all together, number one, Again, from the first three episodes of interviews with Dr. Randy Jurdle, Ken Cook, and Dr. Victoria Mazes. As always, hug those kids. Thanks, and have a great day. And as always, the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or healthcare professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This is Podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.